This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Welcome to Reimagine Law, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Michael Drayton, uh, a colleague who I've known for, for a few years now. Um, Mike, would you like to introduce yourself and in, on your background? I mean, we're going to be talking about this fascinating topic and serious topic of burnout and how we can help some of our listeners think about the topic, but perhaps also have some strategies for coping as well. So, uh, yeah, it'd be great to know a little bit about your background, Mike, for the listeners, first of all. Sure, thanks. Thanks, Nigel. Um, and it's nice to be here. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. I'm an executive coach, an organisational consultant and a clinical psychologist. I'm actually a leadership coach at Said Business School, Oxford University, which is where we met. Uh, I'm also a fellow of the Cabinet Office Emergency Planning College, and I've worked with lots of uh, different types of businesses from multinationals to professional service, service firms, including law firms. And I, th- I guess the main reason that I'm here is that I'm the author of a book called Anti-Burnout, How to Create a Psychologically Safe and High-Performing Organisation which was published, um, well, it's a year ago now, actually, by Routledge. And it's kind of an interesting book on burnout because it's not just a um, self-help book. It's more about the systemic and organisational aspects of burnout. So I think it's, it's you know, it'd be very relevant for your listeners. Very good. No, thank you, Mike. And I think as, as we start on this topic, as I said, obviously a very serious topic, but also one where we're conscious the sector we operate in, you know, we need to support people on, on this, this issue as well. Um, and we'll come on to issues such as hybrid working. I know we're going to cover that later and, and those types of issues. Should we start, though, with some definitions, perhaps, though, Mike? Um, what do we mean, or what do you, I'll ask you, the psychologist, you know, what do we mean by burnout, or how do you define burnout? Sure, that's a great place to start, because I think there's lots of confusion about what burnout actually is. Most people think of it as a synonym for just kind of overwork and tiredness, but it's a lot more than that. You asked me for my definition. I can actually go one better than that. I can give you the definition from the World Health Authority of burnout because it's actually included in the WHO International Classification of Diseases Manual, ICD-11. And it's kind of really helpful and um, interesting because the first thing uh, the World Health Organization say about burnout is that it's not actually disease, but the classic as an occupational phenomenon. In other words, it's a set of symptoms that arise due to work. So burnout, you know, in a sense, it's the psychological equivalent of something like asbestosis, you know, which is a very different way of thinking about it. Because many people think about burnout as a kind of a personal problem to do with weakness or something like that, but it's actually caused by work. So the World Health Organization say there are three factors uh, um, associated with burnout, three sets of uh, symptoms. The first one is exhaustion. And that's physical, mental and emotional exhaustion. It's feeling so tired that you can't think or string two sentences together, which is kind of what most people's definition of burnout is. But as I said before, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. The second group of symptoms is uh, cynicism and detachment. It's when you start thinking, God, I hate this job and I hate my life. It's detachment in the sense if you don't care anymore about work, work has lost its meaning, which is very interesting for lawyers because most people are, you know, when they start their career in law are very passionate about about the law, but that often goes and drifts away and you get detached from your colleagues and you even get detached from your, your family, you know, you might be working at home at nine o'clock at night and you're 
better half brings you a cup of tea and you start to say things like, just leave me alone, I've got to finish this, stop interrupting, things like that. And I'm sure many of your listeners might have um, had that experience. Mike, that's really interesting what you've just mentioned there, this idea of people uh, having good purpose and the sense of purpose in their work. Can you just tell me a little bit more about how that links to burnout or perhaps protects you from burnout? One of the main factors that prevents burnout is being able to either hang on to, or if you've lost it, reconnect with a sense of meaning and purpose. Think about why you wanted to uh, become a lawyer in the first place, all those years ago, you know, if you're a seasoned partner of a law firm, what, what motivated you to go into law? Why was it important? Why did you decide to become a lawyer rather than something else, you know? Because I think sometimes, you know, the kind of the grind of the job, the day-to-day -day bits of the job, you forget why the purpose and meaning of your work and why you wanted to be a lawyer in the first place. And if you can re somehow reconnect with that and think about that, then you'd find it, you know, tremendously helpful. Because if you feel that you're doing something meaningful uh, with purpose and something that's important, well, you can work hard, you can, you can run through walls, can't you? And the third and final factor, uh, which is the kind of really insidious factor, is rapidly declining workplace performance because people get so tired and so fed up it takes them much longer to do fairly trivial and simple tasks and that's the vicious circle of burnout and in fact that's also the solution because because if law firms can introduce a culture of anti-burnout of, of, of psychological safety well what happens well the third factor starts to uh, uh, um, decline in other words people's ability to do the job improves so if you reduce the factors that cause burnout, it actually improves people's performance at work and you get into a, you know, what's the opposite of a vicious circle, a virtuous circle. So, so that's, so, the, and, and this is it, you see, burnout is much more complex than most people understand and it's more of an organisational phenomenon than a personal phenomenon. Mike, that's really fascinating. And you've mentioned already some points here. So that definition in the World Health Organization's definition is really interesting and helpful as well, I think, as you say. And you've hinted already about how some of this can apply to the world, the legal world and the legal sector, and how lawyers can be impacted by this. Is there anything else to add in the sense of that aspect of how does this really apply to lawyers? I mean, you've mentioned it's linked to the organisational context and how work is done. So I guess, you know, we're all reading about the daily pressures, the hours, and I say, I know we're going to come on to hybrid working later, but anything else just to add here around the legal sector and why you feel it's a, it could be a particular issue that we really need to help people with there. Knowing lawyers, I think there are at least, well, there are probably lots of factors, but there are, there are at least two factors. Uh, the first one will be personality factors, which I could talk for hours about this, but I won't, in that most lawyers, especially most successful lawyers, are very high on the personality factor of conscientiousness. Uh, so they work hard and they're generally organized people, uh, which you have to be to be a to be a lawyer, especially to be a successful lawyer. So lawyers work hard, not because they have a boss yelling at them or they're frightened of getting into trouble or something like that. They work hard because if they don't work hard, they feel guilty. So, so their overwork, let's say, is intrinsically driven. It's driven by their own personality. And the problem with with anybody who's highly conscientious, as we probably know, Nigel, it's knowing when to stop. And uh, we'll come on to this later, but with hybrid working, you know, if you're in the office and the office closes at whatever time, six or seven o'clock, you get kicked out and you have to go home. 
but when we're working at home you know there's there's no boundaries around our work so that's the first thing you know if you've got a group of people who are very highly conscientious um and also have been trained to look for details and yeah. um yeah. look for things that might go wrong it's kind of paranoid is not the quite quite the right word but it's this very kind of this mindset where you're always worried about missing something yeah I mean, you're looking at risk you're risk managers really exactly. your clients, aren't you your risk managers and i think also as you say one thing that's really come home to me then like that you and i i think have often discussed is this point of they want to do a good job as you say yes. that sense of conscientiousness and almost i want to do it you know i don't just want the 80 percent version of this i want to get this 100 percent right for the client and for my colleagues and so that brings intrinsic pressure to the situation yeah. as well yeah and there's a reality to that because if you get something wrong it could have you know catastrophic yeah, yeah. consequences yeah. you know for your um for your client so but the second thing i think is really interesting is the culture of law yeah. because i worked for a long time um you know in the health service as a, as a mm. clinician and i think clinicians have a similar culture sometimes in that consultants um have worked kind of long hours uh in there back in the yeah, whatever yeah. it was the yeah, 70s yeah. 70s or 60s or, or 80s or whatever that was and they turn kind of have this uh, mindset and i'm paraphrasing and exaggerating for it for effect here that well working 100 hours a week didn't do me any harm mm. well maybe it did you know maybe it harmed your health maybe it harmed your family maybe it harmed your kids i don't know but i think younger people are much more reluctant to accept that kind of culture you see, you know, so you've got the um, churn in law firms now. It's very hard to recruit. You know, it's a lot of competition for, you know, for good new lawyers. So I think that culture needs to be thought about and uh, reflected on and, and changed, really. One more thing. I think, I, again, the paradox is people think that if you work fewer hours and work less intensively, your, your billing hours will drop and your performance will drop. But in all of the clients I've worked with, the opposite happens. You know, the, the, the more breaks people take, the more efficient they are and the better they are at the job. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting point on productivity there, as you say, Mike. So if, if you're listening to this and you're perhaps a senior member of an organisation and thinking, you know, well, how do we make this work from almost a, uh, you know, productivity point of view? Or, yeah, actually, there's a, there's an upside and a because you know wellness will actually deliver better work product um, more efficiently uh, as you say is, is what the research would, would tell us too um very interesting and you know and mike as I, as I say i know we've we've you know there's been a lot in the press around around this in the last in the last year or so certainly or the last two years during the pandemic around um around well-being and as you say it's an, an issue of attraction for, for firms as well and retention, how they how they building the support around individuals in these situations. And we'll, we'll come on to it. I mean, Mike, should we go next to just thinking about what are some, I mean, you've given some tips already and some ideas. Um, as you say, there are two levels to this. There's an organizational level and an individual level. Um, anything we'd offer out to our listeners in terms of at an individual level, what should they be really doing to, for their own well-being here and to helping to manage any risk as you say anti-burnout how can we how can they avoid it again that's a kind of an interesting question because i'd say the first error in the in the question really is is to think of it as an individual problem as soon as you yeah think of it you know as soon as you start to say um oh i'm burning out or i feel burnt out you've made it your problem right Okay. You know, and it's not okay. your problem really you know it's it's the problem of the organization the problem lies 
between you or the person who's burning out and the organization it relies in that it lies within that relationship and that's where the, the true fix is but nevertheless i mean there are things people can do but for, but the first thing is don't think of it as this is me it's not you you're a perfectly capable competent smart hard-working conscientious person because you're not coping people tend to think there's something wrong with me well, yes. it's, 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 there's nothing wrong with you. Well, there might be, but probably there isn't. The thing that's wrong is the relationship between you and work, and that's what needs to be fixed. But nevertheless, there are things you can do. I mean, it's important, you know, if your employer is not looking after you, not taking care of your health, you have to take responsibility for it. And that's often difficult. You know, it's often difficult for people to do that. It's difficult to say no to things. But nevertheless, I mean, that's your responsibility and your decision. So what can you do? Well, when I wrote my book on burnout, I reviewed all the academic literature on burnout. And there's one really robust and consistent finding, which is this, that the biggest factor that mitigates against burnout, the biggest factor that stops people burning out is this, is the ability to switch off at the end of the working day. Okay. Yeah. Now, now the end of the working day, you know, might be 5 p.m., but probably isn't, even yeah. if the end of the working day is 9 p.m., when 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. or whenever you decide to stop working, that's important to decide, well, I'm going to work until 8 p.m. tonight if you're overworking. Mm. Then you have to stop and switch off and do something different because you can't, you know, if I said to you, stop thinking about work, well, you start thinking about work, don't you? Yes. You know? so, so if you're going to stop work, you have to close down your laptop, switch off your damn email notifiers and, and do something to replace. That, that has an equal attraction that fills up your mind with something equally as important as work. So go and learn, you know, um, learn the guitar or read Russian poetry, or even if you're just watching Netflix, focus on the, on the TV program. Don't let your mind drift back to work. So it's having that really clear boundary uh, between work and not work because, because the other findings are true as well. People can't switch off people who, you know, have a busy, demanding job and they're constantly thinking about it, you know, or the con you know, if they literally take work home with them. But even if they just take home work in their head, so they're lying, uh, uh, lying awake at night wondering what they're going to do about this problem tomorrow, they're the ones at a very, very high risk of burnout. And, and, and I wouldn't minimise the difficulty of switching off. I think it's quite a difficult thing to do, yeah. for, you know, for conscientious people, but it's an important thing, an important thing to do, I'd say. Mm. Uh, so that's one thing, and a really quick one, which which sounds a bit like one of these LinkedIn kind of trite kind of bits of advice, but it really does work, uh, you know, which is having frequent breaks throughout the day. So don't do back to back mm -hmm. Zoom meetings, get out, walk around your garden, look at the look at the trees, look at the sky. And again, we haven't got time to go into this, but this comes out of a whole line of research into anti burnout. Mm. So it's how you can do difficult things, stressful things and actually get stronger from that rather than get ill from that. You know, it's like exercise. You wouldn't exercise constantly for 10 hours a day because you, it'll make you ill or injured. But work is a bit like that as well. Yeah, so in other words, it's about the muscle, isn't it, as you say, but just um, just building up different muscles. And, you know, but as you say, Mike, it's about change of focus, I guess, isn't it? Mm. So as you say, whether it's in the evening and the boundary point. But I think that's really helpful for listeners because, you know, many of them will feel, OK, what choice do I have in the situation I'm in? As you say, the relationship between them and the organisation mm. is a really interesting question. Obviously, responsibility on the organisation there as well. But this whole thing of little things I can do, like switch off take a break during the day as well, you know, mark the end of your day too, you know, whenever, however you best do that, as you say, change focus. Really good, Mike. Thank you. Yeah.
actually, I ran a, a program for NHS England for uh, safeguarding leads, who some of your um, listeners may have come across in their legal practice, who've got a terribly high risk of burnout. And one thing I noticed, it's kind of a silly thing, this, but I think it's quite profound in, in a funny sort of way, is that the people on this program who, who had dogs were a lot more psychologically healthy because they take their dogs for a walk twice a day. Otherwise, well, I thought, well, that's interesting. You take care of your dog, but you don't, you know, you don't take care of yourself. You have to prioritise your dog's mm. need, but that helps you prioritise your needs as well. <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, but there you are. I mean, there's a fascinating thing that actually having to work around the needs of another, another, mm. another. In that case, the the dog or whatever the pet mm. is actually something that actually does truly distract you or, or can give you give you a different focus for a little while mm. so yeah very good mike um okay so we've looked at some tips there around the at the individual level and you've made the point quite clearly as you say it's about the relationship between you and the organization as well and obviously the organizations are really focusing on this um at the moment this whole issue you know we've all talked about lockdown well-being perhaps should, should we move on there and think about because the no, not just about the pandemic and everything, but in the sense of if the future of the world of work is going to be this hybrid nature yeah. of, um, as you say, sometimes we're going to be remote, including from our colleagues. Sometimes we're going to be in the office. Um, I guess some, you know, many people were already working remotely in some senses because they were part of international teams, even when they mm. were physically in a building. But but anyway, let's 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 if we go, Mike, a little bit with this thought of the the hybrid world of work and, and the future and what does, yeah? How do how do how do we deal with deal with the issue of burnout in that context? Do you think both from again? Think, let's think organisationally as well as individually. Boundaries. I think it's hard enough for people, you know, back in back in the good old days when we we're in offices to knock off work sometimes and to finish work on mm. time, and that's kind of that's the nature of the job, isn't it? You can't, you know. But yeah. I think it's much much harder when people are at home and there's there's there are no boundaries or there are very few boundaries between work life and home life especially if you haven't got the luxury of an office or you know if you're working yeah, at a kitchen true. table or yeah. something like that's even harder yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. so the tip is this is to try and and again i wouldn't minimize the difficulty in doing this i think any of these tips you know you know you hear, again you hear this kind of try advice do this do this do the other well that most people kind of know what to do but the difficulty is in in, in kind of forcing themselves to do mm. it because it's very difficult to do so that so what do you do if you're working from home well you need to start to impose some artificial boundaries mm. um uh so well when you finish work put your laptop away you know um i mean literally lock it in a cupboard or something like that so you're not tempted to pick it up yeah, yeah. think um you know, if you, I mean, you mentioned international calls earlier, which is an interesting point. So, you know, I have I have um, clients who have offices in on the west coast of the US. So they have yep. the frequent or in Tokyo. So they're frequently having calls at nine o'clock at night. Well, what do you do? Well, a lot of them just work through. They work through from seven a.m. Mm. till nine, and they're exhausted. But what you can do is to say, well, I've got a call between eight and nine to San Francisco. So I'm going to finish at four. And I'm going to have two hours off and I'm not going to think about work. I'm going to have a rest and I'm going to have dinner and then I'm going to apply myself and uh, for the for the 8 p.m. phone call, you see. So they're still getting a break and they're still getting some downtime. Yes. So that's a struggle. Yeah. It's to impose some artificial boundaries to say, well, I'm going to make sure I have a, you know, I'm going to have a 45 minute break at lunchtime and put it in, put it in your diary, you know, and go for a walk. Mm. Um, mm. have a half an hour break in the morning, half an hour break in the evening. And these things seem trivial when you're caught up with work. But what you'll find if you do is you'll come back to your work refreshed. 
and, and yeah. you'll get through it much more more quickly. I mean, I get to a point at 3 p.m. in the afternoon where I'm brain dead. I can hardly, you know, so I'll go off and go for a walk, exercise. Or I might have a nap even. Can't do that at the office. So that's one of the advantages. Mike, that makes me think of a point around proactive communication, perhaps here. So whether you're the person almost wanting to signal to the person you report to in the team of actually I'm, you know, I'm, I'm available then, but I am going to put in my diary, my breaks, just to maintain my sense of balance here. Or I'm thinking, Mike, also, if you're the leader of the group as well, how you should perhaps perhaps put this on the table as an issue and say to, in a positive way and say to people, give people permission. I'm thinking, you know, what should we voice as managers and leaders in this situation? Well, yeah, it's good to give people permission to take breaks, but I'd probably go further. Because, I mean, I tell people to take breaks. Say, yeah. we finish at six o'clock or we're, you know, or you or we, we're going to have a, a lunch break between 12.30 yeah. and 1.15. Because, because if you give people permission, if you say, well, it's okay for you to take a break, well, people won't do that because it gives them an element of yeah. choice, you see. Whereas if the big boss yeah. says, no, you have to finish work at X, this time, you know, we're shutting down the office at 8 p.m. I don't want anybody mm -hmm. working. And if you get caught, buddy, you will be in trouble. Now, this, um, so I think that's more more important than giving permission. I think you should tell people. Now, very quickly, this this uh, program I did for NHS England is started off live. It went on online. I used to tell people we have lots of uh, breaks built into the program, and I'd say you have to take a break. So we've got a twenty minute break now, and I don't want you to do emails. I want you to reflect on what we've spoken about. And I said I have special. Uh, a program on my computer so I'll be able to tell if you're using email and I'll be very cross with you if you do that kind of joking me I didn't you know I didn't have a program <laughs> but, but anyway at the end of the program people would give feedback and they say what is the uh, you know one of the most helpful things was taking breaks and thinking about what they were doing you know one person said I think this is the first time I'd had a break since lockdown from my computer during a working day <laughs> people just don't wow. tend not to take yeah. breaks and, and it's important because lawyers are paid to do what? They're paid to think. That's what, that's the, it's the intellectual, you know, they're paid to think. And how the hell can you think if you're constantly bombarded by this stuff? You know, you can't. And it's a bit like Mike, and I think it may, I think it may even be yourself, you know, where sometimes on people's email footers, they actually signal of when they'll be checking emails, for example. So that, you know, in other words, how, how do you manage your day? How do you manage your thinking time? Going back to what you just said. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a real struggle for me to write this book. So I'm very busy. I thought, well, how am I going to do this? Well, I've got to put, oh, I'll put aside Friday as my writing day. And on Friday, I don't switch anything on. I don't switch my um, yeah. emails on. Because if I do, I'll just be constantly distracted. And, and, yeah. and I'm kind of, I'm the sort of person, if you know, if something's difficult, then something easier comes along. I'll, I'll go to the easier thing. <laughs> I'll just do this email, you know. And you never get anything done. So, And again, there's a, there's a whole, there's tons of research into this by a guy called Cal Newport, who's a... Um, a uh, neuroscientist in the US and he's written a book called Deep Deep Work, which is very useful. This is not just my opinion, I suppose, is what I'm saying. It's not just what Mike Drayton thinks. You know, uh, there's a whole, there's a whole, um, there's lots of research to back this stuff up to say it actually does work and it's very helpful. And it actually improves performance and productivity. Yeah. You know? And yeah. that's the key thing. It's this is not just just kind of woo woo. Let's be nice and kind to people. Uh, uh, it's a nice ethical. Uh, well, it is. It's all mm. of those things. But but I think a lot of the people I work with, you know, they'll talk about this. But what really drives them is the bottom line and performance yeah, and productivity. Yeah. And if you can say, well, this will really help people. It's a win win. It's going to help people, but it will also improve performance. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's what I find frustrating because people focus on the nice, nicey bits of it, which is good. You know, it's a good thing to do, but they forget the performance improvement aspects, which is very important for organisations. Yeah, exactly. And, and so there's a bottom bottom line message there in terms of financials or, as you say, results um, yes. that comes out of good practice, which also looks after your people as well, which I, I guess is, is one of the key messages here. And, and as you mentioned earlier, it's good for uh, recruiting talent and retaining Absolutely. talent and as retention. well. Because if people yeah. feel fed up and unhappy and, and all these things I've just mentioned, what are they going to do? They're going to look for some, look for another job. Yeah, And that's, exactly. that's a problem for many firms, especially yeah, the yeah, big, yeah. Uh, you know, big firms. No, that's, that's, been, that's been fascinating, Mike. And, and I think, you know, I think some of the takeaways here in terms of it's not just you know, don't think of this as about you. It's about the context you're operating mm -hmm. in with the organization. It's about boundaries. It's about, you know, managing your time, your proactive communication. And if you're a leader, it's about actually having a team which is both healthier, but also more productive as well. So there are so many takeaways, I think, for, for people here on so many different angles, Mike. Spot on. Well, thank you so much, Mike. That's been that's been fascinating. And I think it's given our listeners both a lot of insights and a lot of takeaways as well they can apply practically in their day-to-day -day existence. And that goes whether you're at university and under pressure or whether you're in the world of work or whether you're senior and managing and leading a team, as you say. Um, and also how well-being leads to productivity as well, If you know, to look at it from that angle as well in, in terms of a business sense as well. So thank you very much, Mike. And for all of you listening, um, we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll be back soon on Reimagine Law.